Last year, I had the opportunity to list my Montecito guest house on Airbnb. This was part of a special project that Airbnb spearheaded to build connection and to make the world feel a little less lonely. It was such a pleasure to get to know my Airbnb guests over dinner and share my home with them so that they could rest and recharge on their trip. But typically, the beauty of hosting on Airbnb is that while you're away, someone else can get as much joy from your home as you do. Being a host on Airbnb is great for those who travel frequently, have extra space, or own a seasonal home. If you've stayed at an Airbnb, you know the unique experience it offers. And now you can share that same experience with others in addition to earning additional income on the side. To learn more about hosting on Airbnb, head to airbnb.com slash host. When you are pioneering anything or introducing new ideas to the culture, you get criticized. You do? Yeah. <laughs> Did you hear about that? <laughs> I didn't find the one. I found someone I respected and we made it the one. In the sort of longing kind of view of love, people understand each other as if by magic. Nothing in itself is addictive on the one hand. On the other hand, everything could be addictive if there's an emptiness in that person that needs to be filled. I now know that nobody changes until they change their energy. And when you change your energy, you change your life. I'm Gwyneth Paltrow. This is the Goop Podcast, bringing together thought leaders, culture changers, creatives, founders and CEOs, scientists, doctors, healers and seekers, here to start conversations. Because simply asking questions and listening has the power to change the way we see the world. Here we go. Rick Doblin is the founder and executive director of the Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Studies, also known as MAPS. Elise interviewed Rick on the podcast a little over a year ago about his work pushing forward critical research on psychedelics, trauma, and healing. Today, Rick explains how the landscape of psychedelic research has evolved since then and what the future is looking like. We talk about how and why MDMA is being used in conjunction with psychotherapy. There's continuing research underway looking at the potential therapeutic benefits of MDMA for people who are trying to heal from PTSD, eating disorders, alcoholism, social anxiety, and other forms of trauma. Rick's larger purpose is really to help people feel more connected to themselves, to one another, and to the world around us. Part of his mission is focused on making psychedelic-assisted psychotherapy accessible to people who could benefit from it. And at the end of our conversation, Rick will explain more about a $10 million fundraising challenge. The challenge will hopefully fund the final research stages needed to help make MDMA-assisted psychotherapy a legal prescription treatment for PTSD. I'll also invite you to join me in donating to a fund that supports BIPOC therapists going through MAPS training and BIPOC PTSD patients getting MDMA therapy. I've learned so much from Rick about the different paths to healing and about how people can store, process, and release memories, stuck emotions, and old unconscious wounds. I think his vision of a more interconnected world is a very beautiful one. So welcome back to the Goop Podcast. <laughs> Terrific, Gwyneth. Thank you for doing this for, for the second time. Elise's podcast with you was fantastic. And for anybody who's listening, you know, I recommend also going back and listening to Elise's. If you find today interesting, which I'm sure you will. 
so how 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 is it cha- how has this landscape changed in the year since you were first on the Goop podcast? Well, one of the most amazing things is that we have a psychotherapist who's a full-time police officer who's going through our training program to learn to give MDMA therapy to traumatized police. Also, I've had two major breakthroughs in a way. Earlier this week, I gave a talk with a a woman, Candace Monson, who's a researcher to the Boston VA. And this was the first time that we gave a a formal presentation about MDMA research to group of veterans administration people. And Candace actually developed, she was in charge of deputy director of women's health at the Boston VA. And and I think she would be great if you did want to interview her too, because she developed something called cognitive behavioral conjoint therapy. And conjoint means couples or dyads where one of them has PTSD and it affects the relationship. Because a lot of times people with PTSD, it just spills over into all of their relationships and it makes them very difficult. And so she's gotten really good results, but she thought, what happens if she adds MDMA to this? And we end up giving both members of the couple MDMA. And so it's kind of a, um, it's about PTSD, the one person that has PTSD, but we're learning a lot about couples therapy and how to do that as well. There's all these measures of the relationship. And so that was kind of a a breakthrough because she is now in uh, Toronto at Ryerson University, and she's the president elect of the International Society of Traumatic Stress Studies. Wow. which is the largest organization of researchers and therapists for PTSD. And so for the two of us to, to speak there, and then for the people at the Boston VA to say that when they heard four years ago about MDMA, they were snickering and they were laughing about it, and now they take it seriously. And then last week, I had this incredible also Zoom call, and this was a group of psychiatric residents at uh, UMass Worcester, which is an hour outside of Boston. And I was so excited when they asked me to do that because I knew that the one of their faculty members is the president-elect of the American Psychiatric Association. So I asked them to invite uh, him to be the discussant after my presentation, and he agreed to do that. And then the chief of psychiatry at Tufts, also here in Boston, Paul Summergrad, is the former president of the American Psychiatric Association. And I asked if they would ask him to be on the discussion too. So it was me who I think of myself sort of, you know, an old old hippie draft resistor, kind of gone legit, sort of. But to be there with the next and the former president of the American Psychiatric Association and them saying that they think this is a really important area of research and they want to see more with psychedelics. So I think just in the last time that, in the time that Elise and I spoke for the podcast, it's gotten much more accepted, much more legitimized, in all different ways. And that's it's, uh, like I'm almost in this perpetual state of astonishment about people that previously were uncomfortable with this, but now seem to be welcoming it. And what do you think has happened that you have these traditional doctors opening to the idea of psychedelic assisted therapy? Are they reading data? Well, I think it's primarily that. I think it's primarily data. I mean, the other thing that happened since the podcast with Elise was that we had what's called the interim analysis for our first phase three study. So for FDA approval, we have to demonstrate safety and efficacy. There's two phase three studies that we have to do. 
and the first one is 100 person the second one is 100 person and then in march we had what's called the interim analysis which which we pre-negotiated with fda and that means that when it was 60 percent of the way done that we had 60 percent or 60 of the subjects we had their results we could take a look at the data and it's called sample size reestimation. What, what that means is when you design a study, you do all these statistical power calculations and you base it on your phase two data, but it's a bunch of assumptions. And the interim analysis is you're checking your actual data with your assumptions. And if the results aren't as good as you thought, then you might have to add more people to the study to get statistical significance. So we did that in March and it was uh, very nerve-wracking for me to open the email from this uh, data monitoring committee. But the results were fantastic. The results were that we didn't need to add anybody to the study. We have a 90% or greater probability of success once the rest of the 40 people are enrolled. What are they tracking in the study? What are some of the metrics there that they're looking at? Well, this is one of the reasons why it was so exciting to talk to the Boston VA, because the metric for evaluating PTSD symptoms is called the CAPS, the Clinician Administered PTSD Scale, and it was developed out of the Boston VA. And it, it looks at all different dimensions of PTSD. So what kind of uh, things do people avoid? People a lot of times have what are called avoidance behaviors. They'll avoid things that remind them of how they got traumatized or they call hypervigilance. Like if someone was attacked, let's say, uh, by somebody wearing certain kind of clothes, and then you see somebody else wearing those kind of clothes, you, you get triggered. And, and even though it's logically different, it's in a public space. So that's also hypervigilance. You're always scanning the environment for trauma, nightmares. And if there's a trauma there it's a, that's triggered, is it a, it's a physiological response that's not rational? Yeah, it's so quick. So what, what we know about PTSD is that it changes your brain. And so the prefrontal cortex, where we think logically, where you could say, oh, that sound is a car backfiring, it's not a bomb, or that person wearing those clothes, it's not the same situation. You can logically separate it out, but the prefrontal cortex activity is less in people with PTSD. It, you're, you're more irrationally, emotionally triggered, and, and your logical thinking is suppressed. And so there's a whole series of domains of PTSD that are evaluated in an hour interview by this clinician-administered PTSD scale translated into multiple languages all over the world. We actually translated it into Arabic because we were trying to do um, psychedelics for peace and reconciliation, and we had a project in Israel, and we tried to start research in Jordan as well. And so we needed to get this measure translated into Arabic. So, so and, and the other part of it is that it's an external person. So it's a clinician administered. It's somebody else evaluating you. You're not self-reporting what your symptoms are. That's a big, important part for the FDA. Got it. So then there are certain behaviors or responses that they evaluate, and then is there a score? And then, or, and then what is the next step after that? Well, yeah, it all comes down to one number. So what they do is they kind of weight all these different kind of symptoms that you might have in different areas, 
and how severe they are. And they all added up into, you get one number. And so we do that at baseline, which is after people have tapered off of their other medications, if they're on other medications, then they get their baseline score. And that's what is compared with the final outcome measure, which is two months after the last MDMA session. So those are the two data points that we're really comparing for the FDA. But then we also do um, 12-month follow-up, one-year follow-up. That's more for insurance companies to try to tell a story to insurance companies that the effects are lasting. And because this is more expensive initially than just giving somebody pills because it's psychotherapy plus MDMA. Right. So there's more of an initial cost, but if it lasts, then it can be worth it. So, right. so we do 12 month follow up. And, and the good news is that we find, and Candace found this in her uh, work with the couples, the cognitive behavioral conjoint therapy, too, is that once you help people learn how to process their trauma, they can do it without the drug right. and they can do it without the therapist. And so people keep getting better. After our therapy is over at the two month follow up, people keep getting better so that they're actually lower PTSD symptoms at the 12-month follow-up. Is PTSD the only condition that's approved for studying MDMA at the moment? No, no, no. Well, we're gonna be doing a study with MDMA for eating disorders. We've also done studies with autistic adults with social anxiety. So we were studying social anxiety and it, I mean, now with COVID and all that too, I think there's gonna be so much more social anxiety yeah. and more trauma. There's a study recently by Dr. Ben Sessa in England for MDMA for alcoholism. And the results are really pretty good at the three-month follow-up. Now, of course, you got to follow it up longer. But the theory there is that if you're traumatized, if you have unresolved conflicts, that's what often drives people to run away for drug abuse or alcohol. So so will you take us through how... An MDA, MDMA session works. Yeah. And then explain why it works in the longer term. Okay. So the most important factor in therapy in general, regardless whether it's MDMA or cognitive behavioral therapy or anything like that, it's called the therapeutic alliance. It's the relationship between the person and their therapist. Do they feel safe? Do they trust them? Can they be honest? Can they you know, feel loved and supported? And so what we have is basically a three and a half month treatment process. And there's only three times that people get MDMA and that's one month apart. And those are eight hour long sessions and they're with a male female co-therapist team. And because the treatment is really the psychotherapy that the MDMA helps make better, we also have 12 90-minute non-drug psychotherapy sessions, so more or less once a week. So three of those to build up the therapeutic alliance as, and preparation to train people, what is MDMA, what is the session might look like. And then we have three of these 90-minute sessions after each MDMA session to help them integrate it. Because you could have a great time on MDMA, but if you don't think about it, if you don't process it, if you don't work on it, it might not lead to long-term positive change. Do people have a great time on it or is it? Well, 
I guess I should have been more precise. A lot of the people say, I don't know why they call this ecstasy. <laughs> you know, because they, they are um, processing sad, sad things. But there's moments of levity. There's moments of love and self-acceptance. There's moments of uh, forgiveness. There, there's moments of peace. A good way to describe it, I think, is a deep breath. It's like this peacefulness that you get from a deep breath and that you can have that experience. So some people do have very uh, exquisite feelings. Uh, so more portions of it can be a quote, great time, but much of it is processing trauma. And a lot of it, when it's really difficult, comes in the body. You sort of asked about physiological. In such a way, I worked with somebody a long time ago whose um, arm got paralyzed under the influence of MDMA. and. He knew that MDMA doesn't hurt your nerves. It, it just was a psychosomatic thing. And we told him, don't panic. We're not going to call 911. You know, this is something psychosomatic. And over the course of an hour, this fellow told this story about he was a doctor. His father was near the end of his life and was on life support. And they had a meeting with his mother and the siblings. And they decided that the father would, would want to be taken off of life support. And as it turned out, because he was a doctor, he used his hand to write the order, but he said he hated his father. And so the confliction was that what we was conflicted about was, did he murder his father? Did he do this out of hatred? And the thought of that made it so his arm got paralyzed. He couldn't even make that thought conscious. But over the course of an hour or so, resting and talking to us, the whole story came out. And at the end of it, the feeling came back to his arm. And as a therapist, are you, you're taking, you're looking for clues as cues to ask deeper questions or go down a particular road with somebody? Yeah, so the, the exactly. Because the other part of it, we don't use the word guide. You know, we're not the guide because we don't know where people need to go. Right. You know, we know kind of the process and how to do it, but we call it inner directed therapy is the name for our therapy, meaning that it's directed by the person who is um, taking the MDMA. And we don't have any particular order. We don't say you must start with your trauma and tell us all the horrible things. Sometimes people will start with wonderful experiences that they had and it's like they're gathering strength to go back into the trauma. Everybody has their own unique rhythm. And it's an eight hour session so that we have time to work with people. And so of the eight hours, roughly half the time in no particular standardized order, people are listening to music with their eyes closed and they're having imaginal experiences. And what and, is that to facilitate? Well, during that portion of it, you're just observing their body language. You're checking in with them every once in a while. But basically, people are on their own during that period. And you're, you're, you're just watching for tension. Are, the main thing you're trying to see is, are they open to it? Is the energy flowing through them, or are they resisting it? And then if they're resisting it, or like with the person whose arm got paralyzed, you try to help them bring up what's under the surface and help them express it. And, and how, how off their faces are these people? <laughs> Like, what is the dose of MDMA? 
Well, what we we have three MDMA sessions. The first one is 80 milligrams, which is kind of a moderate dose. But in this is such a precious opportunity for the patient to be in the safe place that after two hours, we give half the initial dose. And that's to extend the plateau. It doesn't really make it stronger, but it gives more time in what people call the optimal arousal zone. You know, that, that you're not too numb so that nothing matters or you're not so hypervigilant that you just can't concentrate, you're kind of peaceful. And so roughly four hours or so, people are in dialogue with the therapists. And it, and it can vary different sessions, different times. Sometimes people are more talkative. Sometimes people close their eyes and uh, they don't wanna come out for another couple hours. But, but they're having these incredible visualizations and imagery, it's, it's stories. Basically, so much of what our life is is stories that we tell ourselves. And a lot of times people with PTSD, the story is I can't trust the world and I'm vulnerable and this is a risk and that's a risk. And the story may have been from a previous time, but it gets superimposed on the present and you can never get past it. For example, one of the veterans in our study told a story during the time that his eyes were closed, he had the idea that the warrior self was locked in a cage inside him. It was like this gorilla. And this gorilla was in a cage and the gorilla actually was reaching through the bars and stabbed him in the side. And this is all this kind of imagination story he's telling himself. While his eyes are closed, he's listening to music and the therapist didn't know about this till the end when he comes out and tells the story. But then he said he realized that this warrior self part of himself was because he saw what it could do when he was in Iraq and he didn't trust it. His problem was rage. He never beat his wife, but he threw things. He, he couldn't control his anger. And he realized that as long as he's keeping this warrior self in a cage, that it's going to make it worse. And that this warrior part of himself actually did help keep him alive. And so then the imagery becomes opening the cage, getting the key and letting this gorilla come out and then hugging each other. And, and this is this whole imagination kind of story of him coming to peace with this part of himself. And this was his first MDMA experience and that solved the rage problem. He never had rage after that. So the way we interpret our experience are, are, are these stories that I think that's why drama and movies and all of this, we so attracted to them because we, we learn through stories. And I, I mean, you, you asked also earlier what has been changed in psychiatry and stuff. They do care about the data. The FDA cares about the data. They don't really want to look at the stories, but most everybody else really cares about the stories. And so what's happening in the therapy is supporting the individual with whatever is emerging. Well, we all know that if you hurt your body, somehow or other, it heals itself, you know, to the extent it can, that it's unconscious. There, there's just this process of, of returning to wholeness. So we have this theory that the psyche is like that. And these traumas are like wounds that block the proper healing. And so what we need to do is this inner healer. There, there's this kind of wisdom that we trust that whatever is emerging, we want to help people 
to explore it and experience it. And that the problems come when you suppress it rather than when you let it out. And so you said, how off their face are they? Some of them are shaking for a long time. You you think they're not even there, right? Because they're, they're back in the trauma. They're re-experiencing it. But a lot of times when it happened, they had to pay attention to survival. They had to, they couldn't really open up to their emotions. And those emotions got suppressed. And because they were so painful, they never really got fully explored. Let's take a quick break to talk about one of our partners. When it comes to putting together your home, a great rug can make all the difference. A rug is really what pulls a room together and creates harmony. Nordic Knots offers a curated collection of rugs and timeless, high-quality essentials. They collaborate with leading designers and are the insider rug brand gracing some of the world's most beautiful homes. They have a wide-ranging collection, but we'll just talk about a few favorites today. The luxurious Grand Collection is known for its simple design, stunning colors, and high-quality wool. But if you're feeling a bit more bold, their designer collaborations are made with world-renowned designers and interior architects. Their Goodweave certified rugs are handmade and woven in all natural materials, like their super soft and beautiful New Zealand wool. At Nordic Knots, they make the process of rug shopping easy and enjoyable. And they always offer fast and free shipping from the U.S. To explore their rug collections, head to nordicknots.com. Use promo code INNERCIRCLE to get free rug samples. Okay, let's get back to the conversation. And what's happening to the chemistry in the brain such that somebody can go back and be experiencing the same trauma, but not experiencing it as trauma and ongoing trauma? Like how is that, what's happening inside the body that that, that happens? Yeah, well, first off, MDMA uh, stimulates oxytocin. And so oxytocin is um, nursing mothers, the love hormone, uh, bonding and affiliation. So MDMA releases oxytocin. And there was also uh, researchers at Johns Hopkins that did studies with mice, and this was published in Nature. And what they showed is that the mice, this release of oxytocin actually promotes new neural connections in pro-social areas of the brain. So you are actually physically rewiring your brain. And there's a phenomenon called fear extinction and memory reconsolidation. You're also rerouting how you recall memories so that there's episodic memory, which is the memory for what happened. And then there's the emotional memory that gets attached to it. So you've got this memory of the trauma and the emotions are fear and anxiety and terror. And you carry that with you. But under MDMA, through the oxytocin, the release of serotonin, dopamine, norepinephrine, and also the changes that happen in your brain. So the amygdala, where we process fear, activity is reduced by MDMA in the amygdala. And we talked before about the prefrontal cortex, where you think logically how that's reduced with PTSD. With MDMA, it's increased. So you're able to think more logically, react less fearfully, you feel more bonded and connected, and you're able to replace the the memory of fear that's connected to this, or the emotion of fear that's connected to the memory 
because of the sense of peacefulness that you are getting from MDMA and because you're releasing it, then what's called memory reconsolidation, you, you, re, you re, reprint it in a way in your brain. So then after the therapy, when you remember it again, you remember the incident and MDMA increases memory for trauma. So people remember more of what actually happened to them, but they don't have the same emotional reaction anymore. It's more of one that, that more peacefulness and you've temporarily put it into the past instead of always happening. So the hippocampus is where we sort of process things into long-term memory. So MDMA increases connectivity between the hippocampus and the amygdala, which means that you can take fearful memories that are always like in short-term memory about to happen, or you can really process them and, and store them away. And then that's a big part of the healing process. So that then once you've released all that energy and all that fear and, and, and saw that where you are now is a safe place, then when you remember the trauma again, you say, I've learned from that. That's, that's not all my story. So a good way to say it is the foreground and the background. That for people who've been traumatized, that's in the foreground of everything. They, they go into a, um, I was about to say they go into a restaurant, which people don't do so much right now. But, you know, they, they go into these places that remind them the trauma, it's, it's like it's still happening. And so you, by putting it into the past, that is a big part of the, the healing process. And so there, there are times when they're not so sure, are they in the present or are they in the past? And they can really vividly remember even more than normal because the fear of those memories is not so great. Then they come up from the unconscious. And then that's a big part of the healing process. What an amazing, I, I'm, I'm just, I, I find it so fascinating that, that we're at this place culturally now where we are kind of, you know, scientific fields and medicine are opening to these, these forms. You know, it's just, I've had some friends who've gone through the process and found it so life-changing. And so it's, I think it's wonderful that you're in the FDA approval process, and I wanted to check in and see where you are with it, and when when will be when will this be more legally widely available for people who have been suffering with all kinds of trauma for their you know most of their lives? Yeah, well, the FDA came to us and they said because of COVID, after you had this very promising interim analysis, and because of COVID research has slowed down and some places shut down. They said, would you be interested in ending your study a little bit early, the first study? And, and we said, yes. And so we've agreed we'll end it with 90 people instead of 100 in the first study. And so we'll have that data by the end of September. We have to do one more study, one more phase two study. And it's unclear, again, because of COVID, what's going to happen. But we think by the near the end of uh, or the middle, let's say, middle of uh, 2022, we should be done with all of the research. And that's where we start negotiating with FDA. And so we're hoping before the end of 2022 that this will be legally available as a, by prescription. But the FDA has also given us permission for what's called expanded access or compassionate use. So that goes in parallel with phase three. So phase three is double blind, People either get MDMA or they get, well, people either get therapy without MDMA or therapy with MDMA. 
but with expanded access, because there's so many people, there's over 8 million people with PTSD in the United States. So the FDA permits- At least, probably. Yeah, and more now. So we're starting expanded access, hopefully also in September. So that's gonna be a situation where, because the data is not used by the FDA to prove safety, they make it, it's for compassionate use, so people can pay for their own treatments. And so that will start in certain sites. Uh, we have about 10 uh, expanded access sites in the United States. But, but I think for more widespread approval based on prescription use, you know, if the data really works, we think it'll be before the end of 2022. And in we're Europe, we're about a year behind. Um, I just had an incredible discussion in Australia with the head of the Australian FDA. And it turns out that they might actually be the first in the world to approve MDMA because what they said we can do there is bring our phase two data, our preliminary data and our first phase three study, and they may approve it on a provisional basis. And so I think Australia may be the first country in the world that's gonna approve it. Wow. Um, and then because they have national healthcare too, the, the hope is that then we get the insurance coverage for it. Yeah. And then globalization. So our thought is Europe is a year or two behind. I mean, a lot of this depends on fundraising because I, I just was offered, an investor offered to pay for all the money we need to finish with FDA and to finish in Europe. And we said no, because, well, what we're trying to do is- Are you crazy? This is like startup 101, take the money. <laughs> well, I, what we're trying to say is that we're more interested in uh, mass mental health than in money. And fortunately, there have been enough philanthropists so far that have contributed. And what I'm worried about, I mean, if you look at what pharma does in general, it's not very focused on what's the best for the patients. It's how do they make the most money? And, you know, um, and, and so we want to demonstrate a new way to market drugs where we're maximizing public benefit, not profit. And so, and we also, this Absolutely. is- Four years. MAPS is 34 years old. Yeah. So we've been at this for 34 years. I've actually been at this since I've been 18 is when I decided I don't want to work on psychedelics. So 48 years. And what we're thinking is that the world is really in need of this kind of healing. And we're in need of separate. Uh, we have so much, so many of us identify as our nationality or our gender, or our religion or our race or anything like that. And then those people that are not like this are the other. And yeah. we see that happening in America all the time right now and elsewhere. So for me, the idea was how do we help people feel the connections? And that was through the psychedelic sense of um, the spiritual sense of psychedelics and also this uh, working through your traumas. And so that's sort of the mass mental health is our goal. And for the first 32 of our 40 year, 34 years, investors weren't even there because it looked like you know, there was no hope. And so if we take in investors now, what I want to then, then we have to give them back proceeds. So what we want to do is, is become this engine of continually being a pioneer for things that are things that investors won't do. So for example, even couples therapy with MDMA, because couples therapy is not a disease. We're not gonna be able to get FDA approval for MDMA for couples therapy. 
you know, that, that's not going to be a prescription use. The same way personal growth or finding, you know, what's my purpose in life? The, the sort of FDA is set up to address diseases, and there's only a certain number of diseases. So another thing that we're doing is we noticed that in Israel and Palestine, there's Israelis and Palestinians doing ayahuasca and MDMA together. For, Whoa. Yeah, for, for learning about each other. That's pretty crazy. Yeah. What we've said is once we've uh, figured out how that works, then we'll bring it home to uh, the harder case of Republicans and Democrats. <laughs> it's going to take two drugs of that level of strength combined to find any bridging of gaps in ideology. Yeah, what, so is it true that MDMA was... Oh, sorry. I was going to say, that's not a monetizable thing. Yeah, of course. So, so that's why we're saying no to the... I was teasing. Let's take a quick break to talk about one of our partners. Last year, I had the opportunity to list my Montecito guest house on Airbnb. This was part of a special project that Airbnb spearheaded to build connection and to make the world feel a little less lonely. It was such a pleasure to get to know my Airbnb guests over dinner and share my home with them so that they could rest and recharge on their trip. But typically, the beauty of hosting on Airbnb is that while you're away, someone else can get as much joy from your home as you do. Being a host on Airbnb is great for those who travel frequently, have extra space, or own a seasonal home. If you've stayed at an Airbnb, you know the unique experience it offers. And now you can share that same experience with others in addition to earning additional income on the side. To learn more about hosting on Airbnb, head to airbnb.com slash host. Okay, let's get back to the conversation. Is it true that MDMA was originally developed as a couples therapy drug? I'll say not really. There, there's a bit of truth to that. So MDMA was invented by Merck in 1912, by Merck Pharmaceutical Company. And they didn't know what they had. They, they actually were trying to get to a different drug, and a competitor had patented the process of getting that to that drug. And so they wanted to find a new synthetic route to avoid those patents. And they patented every step along the way, and MDMA happened to be one of those steps along the way. So Merck invented it in 1912. They never tested it in humans. They tested it in animals a couple times, but they didn't find anything interesting. And the animals didn't um, talk about how much they loved each other. <laughs> they, they were, <laughs> there were also researchers at Johns Hopkins, uh, I'll just say, that did studies with octopuses with MDMA. You're kidding. Oh, no, this is an incredible story. So octopuses and humans diverged around 550 million years ago. And their brains are really different than our brains, but they're very intelligent. People have talked about how intelligent octopuses are. That's why I don't eat them. Yeah, they're, they're very intelligent, and, but they're also asocial, unless it's mating season. They're, they're very solitary creatures, but they still process serotonin. And so these researchers, Gold Doolin at uh, Johns Hopkins, uh, we sent them the MDMA and they figured out how to put MDMA in the water in just the right amounts. You soak the octopus in the water and they have an experimental arrangement where they can, the octopuses can be with another octopus or an inanimate object. And 
without MDMA, they spend almost all their time with the inanimate object. And then they're in, when they're near where the other octopus is, they're around the edges. They're not touching the other octopus, but you give them MDMA and all of a sudden now they hang out with the other octopus and it's pro-social. It goes so deep in our evolutionary history. It's, it's a phenomenal study, but the, the point here is that the uh, Merck didn't give it to the right animals. They didn't see this kind of thing. And so they just abandoned it. And so in 1970, in the backlash against the 60s, Nixon and the war on drugs, they criminalized all sorts of drugs and all sorts of psychedelic drugs. And chemists at the time were looking to modify different drugs that were illegal and come up with new ones that were illegal, that were legal, I mean. Right. And so a fellow named Sasha Shulgin, a chemist, and his wife, Ann Shulgin, rediscovered MDMA in the middle 70s. And they had developed all sorts of other drugs as well, 2CB, other things. And they did it themselves. They thought it was tremendous. They gave it to a small group of people who they got opinions from, a group of 12, actually. And then they decided that MDMA had incredible potential, and they turned it over to a fellow named Leo Zeff, who we call the secret chief. So he was the leader of the underground psychedelic therapy movement. And he was a clinical psychologist, PhD, and he was about to retire. He'd been doing this for a long time. But with MDMA, he said, this is such a new important thing. He, he didn't retire. And he taught hundreds of psychiatrists and psychotherapists how to work with it. And a lot of what they did was couples therapy. So from the middle 70s to the early 80s, MDMA was used about half a million doses were used. Actually, I'm here in my attic in Boston. A lot of the MDMA was made at night at MIT in their chemical labs, <laughs> flying these therapists. But some of the people that took it in this therapeutic setting realized this is a great drug. I could make a lot of money on this. More people should have it. And so it became ecstasy. And that's what attracted the attention of the government. So a lot of people don't know that MDMA was a therapy drug before it became a party drug. And it's the party drug that doomed the legality of the therapy. That happened in 1985. And I was involved back then trying to sue the DEA to try to keep the therapeutic use of MDMA legal. The judge agreed with us, but the head of the DEA rejected the judge's recommendation and MDMA was made illegal. And that's where I realized in 86, the only way through was through science and medicine through the FDA. And it had to be nonprofit because nobody, uh, it wasn't patented, the government wouldn't pay for it, pharma wasn't gonna pay for it. And so there was um, a history of MDMA for couples therapy. And I actually think that it's one of the best uses. Uh, my wife and I try to take it once a year and it's been, Rick, I like your style. <laughs> yeah, it's been um what yeah. happens? What comes up? Is it guided? Do you are you do you have talking points or do you just sort of see what happens? <laughs> well, we like to joke. Sometimes she has a list of things where I should improve on. <laughs> you know, and you're a lot less defensive under MDMA. You know, so you can listen better. And then you know, so yeah, you're much less, um, in, in a way, because there's so much self-love in a way, because there's this self-love and self-acceptance, we can say partially from the oxytocin or whatever it is, that, that you're not as vulnerable to criticism. So you're a better listener. 
And so you, you talk about all different things. I mean, during the periods of time when our kids were little and we didn't have as much time to talk to each other, it's just things that you didn't have time to talk about that now all of a sudden you can, or, you know, all the challenges of a marriage. Yeah. So it, it just proved to wow. be wonderful. Yeah. We would go off somewhere for three or four days and, 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 and I'll just say here too, that I think it's really important to think about as a two day experience. So the first day to do it, the second day to rest and reflect and integrate it. Even for the therapy, you know, we, we have people spend the night in the treatment center and then the next day there's more integrative psychotherapy. They have no obligations. They have no appointments. You need time to rest afterwards. So I, I've found it um, to be one of the most important experiences of, of my life. And in fact, the um, most mystical experience of my life despite the fact I've taken loads of LSD and mushrooms and um, ayahuasca and this, the most mystical experience of my life was under MDMA, surprisingly. And it was, um, there was a, a monk, a Roman Catholic monk, Brother David Steindelrost, who's kind of a mystic and um, ecumenical. And, and I was getting to know him. He actually experimented with half doses of MDMA in the monastery to help meditate. And so half a dose of MDMA quiets the mind. You can reach a deeper state of meditation. But I was trying to figure out why would somebody want to be a monk? Why would somebody want to be celibate? What's the point of it? And so I decided I would take MDMA and spend the whole night all by myself camping out in California, Big Sur. And it was just beautiful. And at one point, though, the roaring of the ocean, I was just a few feet away from the ocean, mountain right behind me. And I just felt that, I was so tiny and the world was so huge and the stars were so huge and the ocean was roaring. I thought I could just disappear into the universe. And it was kind of scary, but it was just, after a while I realized I hadn't disappeared. And I was like, how come, why am I still here even? I mean, why, you know, the earth is spinning. Why don't I just spin off? And then I had this feeling that gravity was, <clears throat> A force of love. Gravity was holding me together. It was holding things together. And I felt that I was cradled in the arms of gravity. It was like being in the arms of a lover. And I felt it that specific, that human. And then I thought, this is like connecting to universal love, the, woven into it. And ever since that experience, I, I've never felt as lonely as I had before that. And I felt this is why somebody would want to be a monk, because you don't focus on humans, but you try to focus on sort of the, the spirituality and love in the universe. And so I, I felt like, great, I figured it out. Now I don't have to be celibate. <laughs> but then 30 years, 30 years after that, I was at a conference and I was a speaker and brother David was a speaker also. And we were sitting next to each other at dinner. And I said, I just want to share with you the most mystical experience of my life. You were involved with it. I, I'd like to know what you think about it. And so I described this whole thing and I described being cradled in the arms of gravity and universal love. And, uh, and I ended and I said, well, what do you think about it? And he was quiet for, for a while. And then he said, I think about gravity every day. You're joking. No, that's, that was, yeah. What an amazing an unusual common thought or denominator between you guys. How strange. Yeah, it was so reassuring for him to say that. Amazing. Do you think that you 
are drawn to this work? I mean, did you have any trauma in your background? Why, why this? Um, I did, but not directly. So I was born in 1953, and I have loads of Israeli relatives. I have distant relatives killed in the Holocaust. And so I was raised with stories of uh, genocide and mass murder, and that that was the kind of lessons that my parents wanted me to understand, that humans are capable of that. Humans are capable of dehumanizing others. We're also doing it in many respects to nature. And that I had to come to terms with that. And that you could have as, as much resources, money in the world, but you could still fall victim to this kind of genocidal hatred. Right. And so that, that became um, a big part of my consciousness when I was younger. Then the next major trauma for me was the Cuban Missile Crisis and this whole idea that the whole world could go up. It, that was also terrifying. Yeah. And the, the idea that you can duck and cover under your desk, that's going to be, save you. <laughs> it didn't, didn't, didn't convince me. Then the, the final step was Vietnam, whereas uh, I was in one of the last years of the lottery, and now it's my own country doing all these horrible things. And, and I had my grandparents and had been very successful and in, in a business in Chicago. And um, I, I had the sense that this multi-generational support, that, that they all wanted me to figure out what to do about this hatred against the Jews. You know, how do you, so they said, look, you know, you don't have to worry about food or shelter. We'll make sure you survive. You can focus on what you think is most important. So I feel like I didn't have any direct trauma and I had super loving parents and family, but that permitted me to look at this extra profound pain and, and fear of the, of the humans destroying each other and destroying others. And, and that's what has kept me going this whole time. So if the FDA says yes, or the DEA blocks us, or it takes 20 years instead of two months or whatever, it doesn't really matter because if I'm not, you know, I could just as easy um, end up in a concentration camp or, you know, we just saw what uh, Bolton talked about Trump telling the Chinese that they could put a million Muslims in concentration camps and he didn't care. So it felt like that was what's been propelling me the whole time. And so it was secondary trauma, you could say. Well, it's a very noble pursuit, and I just, I, I so admire the work you're doing, and I'm really looking forward to it being legal, because I want to try this out. <laughs> we will uh, do our best to make that happen as soon as possible. <laughs> I think, I know, in, in, all, in all seriousness, I, I do think that, you know, the capacity for healing and all of your work, it's, it's, it's going to be a real gift to the world. And thank you so, so much for your time and for enlightening us and educating us. And it's been well, great. I do have a question for you though, as um, when you did the, the movie anniversary party, uh -huh. it was about uh, a group of people doing MDMA together. How, how did you prepare for that? Or how did, how did, what were you um, sort of taught about what the drug would do or, yeah, I had never done it at that point. And I asked a lot of questions 
about, you know, to people who had had a lot of experience with the drug and what it was like and what it felt like. And then I just put, you know, put on my actor hat and tried to be convincing. <laughs> <laughs> you were. Thank you. I have one more thing. Oh, okay. <laughs> oh, well, since I told you I'm turning down investors. <laughs> We, we've had some incredible stuff happen recently. This is one of the other developments since uh, the podcast with Elise is through Tim Ferriss was uh, been tremendously helpful. And we, we have got a $30 billion, what we call capstone campaign, which is to complete all of our phase three research and to get it approved in Israel, Canada, and the United States and to train more therapists and to do expanded access and we raised the first 10 million from our board of directors and from this group called Psychedelic Science Funders Collaborative. They're a bunch of people, mostly from tech, but other things that are wanting to help. So we raised, they called it the inside round. So we got 10 million from that. Right. And through Tim Ferriss, he managed to persuade six, five people, himself or others, and one foundation to offer us a $10 million challenge grant. So we have 90 days ending September 10th to raise $10 million. And then we get the other 10 million. And this 10 million that we need to raise, it, it doesn't have to be right away. It can be up any donations between now and the end of 2022. And we can, so, so we're, we're very close to, uh, we, we've raised two and a half million of the 10 million already. That's great. Terrific. Terrific. Thank you so much. Thank you for joining my chat with Rick Doblin. As Rick mentioned, the FDA recently approved MDMA-assisted psychotherapy for PTSD for a program called Expanded Access, also known as Compassionate Use, which allows people to pay for their own MDMA therapy while clinical trials are still underway. Unfortunately, this treatment currently costs about $25,000. So in an effort to ensure that MDMA-assisted psychotherapy will be available to marginalized communities, MAPS has a $100,000 matching challenge grant for people who donate to support BIPOC PTSD patients going through expanded access treatment. Equally important, this fund will also support BIPOC therapists who are going through MAPS training. If you're interested and able to, I'd love you to join me in donating to this fund. To learn more about it and the capstone campaign that Rick mentioned, visit maps.org goop. That's M-A-P-S dot goop.